0: This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma.
1: For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. The Oklahoma City Council approved more than $227 million for the city's police budget on Tuesday, a $1.3 million increase over the last fiscal year. The budget approval comes a year after some residents demanded funds be taken away from police and invested in community resources. Neva, what are your thoughts on the city's $1.65 billion budget?
0: Well, first of all, it's good news in terms of the the budget being able to be restored to pre-pandemic levels, and I think that that's the, the first upshot. I think when you look at it from the standpoint of uh, including a record $240 million for police in it, that's also good news. I think when we see all across the country I mean these efforts to defund the police and all of the uh, uh, the, the cries for that type of uh, uh, that type of activity uh, for city councils across the board I think Oklahoma City set a set a good tone and certainly uh, m- made it uh, made it something that uh, citizens can be uh, proud of I think looking at the budget I thought it was interesting on the vote when you had the two uh, the two no votes I mean I think people thought there might be three James Cooper uh, uh, finally supported the budget but he also was someone who had proposed this $300,000 to uh, develop an alternative to the uh, uh, police department in terms of responding to mental health crisis in other words staffing with outside mental health professionals so it appears that uh, there was some give-and-take and and and, uh, uh, he got something in that budget process that uh, he cared about and at the end of it uh, could support the, the full budget now He's up for re-election next year. So is Joe Beth Hammond, who is one of the no-votes, the second no-vote being Nikki Nice, who just was re-elected earlier this year without opposition. So will this become part of a political conversation in those campaigns? Very well could be. But I think when you look at the overall, in terms of prioritization, in terms of making safety for the citizens of Oklahoma City a a priority over politics, it's a win-win for Oklahoma.
2: Ryan. Well, you know, I think that you know, this speak, there are a lot of different moving pieces here. I mean, you know, first and foremost, if you think about the, the fact that we've been in this racial, or this racial awakening uh, and reckoning for the last year, uh, long overdue, uh, the fact that we see the city's budget not really reflect that in any way, I think is, is a huge disappointment. You know, I, the calls to defund the police, they, they may feel cathartic. They may feel good to say. At the end of the day, it's, it's unrealistic to think that we're going to defund the police, uh, especially in Oklahoma City. But that doesn't mean that the city can't reimagine what police force should be. And that's that's part of what this $300,000 package that James Cooper, Councilperson Cooper, has been proposing and, you know, hopefully will be used for. But as Councilwoman uh, Hammond said, you know, that's that's really a pittance compared to the need and the city's ability. I mean, just look at the city, as she pointed out, is paying now a million dollars plus uh, in litigation costs to defend an anti-poverty criminalization uh, uh, measure that outlawed panhandling in the in the uh, in Oklahoma County or Oklahoma City, overturned by the federal courts and huge bills that the city's facing. We're paying that. When you look at the city's, the need and the city's ability to pay $300,000, even if that really goes to some reimagined idea of of intervention and de-escalation, that's, that's really not where we need to be. And so Um, You know, this is disappointing in terms of uh, the the level of imagination that the city has put forward uh, in rethinking the way that police forces are deployed in Oklahoma City.
0: I I think it's important to note that that there has been an ongoing public task force that was appointed by Mayor Holt. And I think the things that they've been looking at, uh, everything from uh, police accountability to de-escalation training, uh, really aimed at resolving some of these encounters before they turn violent, those are important things. And I think as we look across the board, they are looking for more innovative ways, more conversation, more engagement with the community to see how we really can move forward and address some of these serious issues.
2: a, A few quick points. One, Free Press OKC has some great coverage of the city council meeting. You know, go go check that out. Um, and then when you when you look at there are two political questions that I think are hanging out there. You you alluded to one of them, Neva, and that is uh, Councilwoman Hammond is coming up for re-election. Uh, she has been, um, you know, just decidedly at odds with the Fraternal Order of Police. FOP OKC has, you know, put out some really outlandish, kind of over-the-top statements on Twitter about Councilperson Hammond. Um, and so, if she's able to win re-election, I think that that is an important marker. Uh, but FOP has. Again, demonstrated that they have a ton of political power here. The other political question that would also be resolved in 2022 is the DA election. And perhaps the DA election in Oklahoma County will have more to do with policing than any budget questions that the council is going to resolve in the near term.
1: In its first week online, enrollment for Oklahoma's new Medicaid expansion reaches 100,000. This is about half of the total estimated by supporters of the initiative petition passed by voters last year. Ryan, what do you think of these numbers? I mean, this
2: is incredible. I mean, you know, of of all of the great stories in Oklahoma 2022, this is one of them. And and the, the folks that had worked on the Medicaid expansion campaign Um, everybody from the Oklahoma Policy Institute and David Blatt and Amber England who ran that campaign, the people that fought for 10 years, uh, over 10 years to make this a reality in Oklahoma, congratulations to them and thanks to them. You know, we're, we're seeing Huge numbers of Oklahomans. You know, possibly by the end of enrollment, the eligibility numbers that we're thinking of—250,000 Oklahomans that may be actually eligible for Medicaid expansion—they're only eligible if they if they enroll. We may hit close to those numbers, and every single one of those individuals uh, represents a person that is uh, removed a little bit—not entirely, but removed a little bit uh, uh, from the fear that if they get sick or injured, that they you know lose everything. You know, I can tell you that. You know, in the last few months, I've gone through some really major medical stuff, and I'm grateful to have had insurance. I'm grateful to have had my own resources to be able to take care of stuff, but For most Oklahomans, you know, they're not in that privileged situation. And so everyone that's enrolling in this, they're getting a little bit more security in their lives right now, and that's the way it should be. Neva?
0: Well, it is fascinating when you look at the numbers because uh, there had always been uh, this conversation that the numbers, these projections, the 175,000 to 200,000 might be low. And and that was concerning to a lot of folks when they they looked at, uh, uh, at the numbers on this because when you look at these first two weeks, you could project out, according to folks that I talked to earlier this week, they were saying that the number could be as high as 350,000 now. So, I mean, we're talking a dramatic shift just in terms of of what they're looking at in terms of the scale of the increased enrollment and all of the ramifications that come with that.
1: The Department of Education uncovered more than $1.6 million in fraudulent claims through federal funds to pay for child nutrition programs. A school Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister says none of the fraud cases came from school districts, but instead mostly from child care sites. Neva, it looks like Oklahoma is the first state to catch fraud within the federal feeding program.
0: It is, and I think uh, this is certainly uh, something that you have to applaud the State Department of Education for being uh, very aggressive. I mean, they put they put Things in place to begin to uh, uh, capture this information, to begin to identify these uh, these issues, and certainly this fraud, which is significant when you talk about a million six uh, mm-hmm. that uh, that the number that they're talking right now in claims. But even more important is the the impact that it had. I mean, we we know that. Given in 2020 by the the numbers of the State Department of Education that their 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 uh, summer food program soared by 700 percent. I mean, so it it is something when you're talking about 13 million meals alone from May to August of last year, and then to have folks that intentionally defrauding. Uh, the uh, f- the federal government impacting the state programs uh, that uh, that were so critical to these kids during the the pandemic and their families. Uh, it is just uh, it's something that needs to be aggressively addressed. If if prosecution needs to take place, it should. And uh, it's uh, again uh, the good news is they caught it. The bad news is there are always these bad actors and bad times who try to exploit the situation.
2: Right. You know the, the pandemic really reminded us of how important schools are and, and, and daycare centers in terms of not just providing <clears throat> instruction, but providing nutrition for, <clears throat> for a lot of these students. And, you know, if we see it every summer, not just in a pandemic, but every time you've got a break uh, kids go home to uh, places sometimes where they don't have access to food all the time. They don't, they may live in a food desert in any, any number of things that, that make it tough for them to get the nutrition that they need. And so this federal feeding program, the expansion of it during the, the pandemic uh, is is, you know, I think a program that we ought to be thinking about modeling outside of the pandemic years. Um, And if if we're going to do that, cracking down on fraud is an incredibly important aspect of that. You know, Oklahoma City Public Schools, they have uh, a poverty threshold for their entire student base that every student in OKCPS um, qualifies for free and reduced lunches. (laughs) And I mean, that's great. And, you know, during the the pandemic, we just live a block away from from our elementary school. You walk up, you pick up a lunch uh, and, you know, uh, snacks and stuff like healthy snacks throughout the week uh you know what a great great program uh you know neva to your point of, of intent i mean you know there's the uh what's what's the saying that if if you can explain it with uh with uh stupidity uh you know that that it might not be malice uh yeah you know, <laughs> this, you know some, somebody's razor somebody'll text me whenever they listen to this and tell me th- the right thing to, to what look the up. actual quote is yeah but <clears throat> but you know I, you know some of this may just be. Um, a function of these daycare centers not having kind of the, the administrative apparatus to handle those kinds of dollars coming through through them and so some of the and that doesn't excuse it but it will uh, I think determine how much level of, of uh, accountability they face now, if they're intentionally doing this it's a totally different ball well, game. and that's one
0: of the things the superintendent Hoffmeister said that in some cases they had determined that these care centers would take an online grocery order uh, and they put it in and then on the backside they'd cancel it but they would take the cash in other words they would go ahead and submit for um, reimbursement which yeah. is uh, again uh, that the intent there is very clear that's right that's not <laughs> that's not stupidity but uh, the other, the other other takeaway that i want to mention is the fact that she made a uh, specific reference to the, the fact that no school had mm-hmm. been identified and i think i think that is an important thing to note
1: as well and again that might go back to the administration the schools have the administration to know okay this is how we're supposed to do this
2: right and and you've got more accountability measures it's it's a lot harder for a procurement officer to, at a school district to do something like that where they make an online order and then then cancel it and put the cash in their pocket. It's it's a lot harder to do that if you're at a daycare center that maybe has two or three people. Yeah. Um, if that working administrative stuff, then it's easier to either get away with things that you shouldn't or to make a mistake.
1: Governor Stitz, Secretary of Digital Transformation and Innovation, is suing former Attorney General Mike Hunter. David Ostro held a press conference to announce he was suing Hunter after charges of attempted bribery of an official were dropped. Ostro claims the charges were politically motivated. Ryan, why hold a press conference to announce you're moving forward with legal action?
2: Well, I think that it's step one of him uh, trying to clear his name. I mean, I, you know, I have, being indicted, uh, and, you know, the governor even made reference to this in a statement of, of about the presumption of innocence and how important it is. You know, I, I remind the governor that everybody has that. and I yeah. think that you know his, his you know, work in criminal justice reform is maybe informed this idea of you know we've really got to hold fast to this bedrock principle of presumption of in- innocence. And I think what when uh, Secretary Ostro had the press conference, it was to stand up in front of the world and say the things that I've been accused of, I didn't do. and I was charged not because they actually thought that I did it, but because it was politically motivated. Now, anytime you're, you're arrested, or charged, um, you know, that in and of itself, uh, or indicted turns your life upside down, yeah. uh, inside out, you know, you, you find out real quick who your real friends are, uh, you know, it's, it's incredibly isolating. Um, you know, so he's been through a really difficult period of time, you know, you know similar to a lot of Oklahomans that are indicted or charged by, by prosecutors at any level. Um, and this is him trying to ride right his, ride right his ship. Uh, I think that uh, this is probably the first opening salvo in this, you know, they've, they've been, uh, team's been pretty tight lipped about the details of what's going to happen here, but the evidence preservation letters that have been sent to the AG's office, to Mike Hunter personally, to the insurance department, um, you know, we can sit here and speculate as to how this is going to go. But whenever, uh, the former attorney general, Mike Hunter in his resignation said, there are things that, might overshadow my ability to do this job you know this is why i'm stepping down i think this was it i don't think it was the um the fact that he was you know getting a divorce or that he you know allegedly had an affair or anything you know I, this is 2021 people don't care uh <laughs> but, and, and if they do get over it already you know but the uh the stuff that that i think that he was really saw so on the horizon talking was about this, last week yeah it right, was where, was the yeah. indictment uh and and the circumstances of this indictment that's that's the thing that's going to be the di- most difficult and now he's saying that he dropped the indictment uh because the, the governor was going to be picking a new attorney general and that would create a conflict um i'm to me that just seems kind of like a graceful coincidence uh, of a way to like get out of that thing but i mean we'll see this uh we're we're just in the very beginning of this novel,
1: Neva,
0: and I think that that was what the press conference really demonstrated is that they're kind of opening opening the door and 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 starting down probably multiple paths, like you say. They the attorney uh, for Secretary Ostro said that he anticipated the claims could be all things from abusive. Process to libel to slander uh, even a potential civil rights uh, uh, violation. So there's a lot of potential litigation uh, down the road uh, that uh, that all involves this particular issue. And I think when you when you look at folks that are serving uh, in the cabinet, I mean these successful business people that came on board uh, that uh, that the governor. Uh, 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 kind of uh, got them to agree to take a leave from their successful businesses to come into government for public service and then the impact of something like this and the ramifications not only I mean in in the work in inside government but the ramifications on the personal business side uh, are have to be tremendous when you uh, look at it just from an outsider's point of view. So I think there uh, certainly uh, this will be a story that uh, kind of like we've talked epic for months and months and months. This may be a story that uh, we continue to see unfold through the summer and into
1: the fall vol- and certainly into the fall. And since there's this long-running legal action, do you think that again was why he steps away? Because if we're going to a, a long legal action, that goes into an election year, that mm-hmm. would have just had so much trouble for, for, the, for Hunter.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, this, again, I think that this is the reason that, that he resigned. I don't think he resigned because he was getting a divorce or any circumstances surrounding the divorce. I think that he saw that the next step of this was going to be an inquiry into his uh, approach of the grand jury and his request for an indictment, which the grand jury gave uh, against the secretary, against Secretary Oster. I think that this was the thing uh, where he said, I can't stay in office anymore.
1: Do you think it's been hard for some of these business people to come into becoming public servants and Because government doesn't run like a business. That's just kind of the point. And and they're kind of going, you mean I can't just, as CEO, I can't command everything to happen?
0: Well, and that is, that's certainly something even when you have a a successful business person become governor. I mean, it it is a different mindset, a different approach. There are many positives to that in terms of looking for more accountability, better efficiencies in government, uh, more innovative thinking um, in terms of what can be done differently not just the status quo. So you have a lot of opportunities there but you're right I mean it is a it's it's a mindset that sometimes rubs against the institutional grain when you have these folks that have been for decades in public in uh, um, in their positions in government know the ropes know their job uh, have a certain way that it's always been done and then these disruptors in their view come in and decide uh, they want to do it differently but but the the backdrop of this story certainly is something much different Uh, it's 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 a a lot of uh, uh, allegations, speculation that ultimately a grand jury did give an indictment, uh, hand up an indictment on. But it is certainly um, uh, something where now Secretary Ostro is going to have his day to to uh, fight hard to, as you say, to uh, uh, redeem his name from what it's gone through to this point.
2: And it's a reversal of roles of some sort because Secretary Ostro, during the indictment, if you're if you're under indictment, your lawyer saying, don't say anything, right. and so he's been—he's right. been, you know, mum. Yeah. Uh, and the attorney general had the microphone, and now the attorney general is on the other end, yeah. and I'm sure that his legal counsel are telling him, "Don't say, anything. Don't say anything." And Oster is at holding press conference, which is again very difficult yeah. to do
1: when you're an attorney general—you can't not say anything. Yeah, you're out in the public.
2: Yeah, no, I think that that's right.
1: Oklahoma's first chief operating officer is leaving his job next month. Governor Stitt announced John Budd will be resigning his position on July 2nd. Bud played a key role in the state's COVID-19 response and helped implement the governor's goal of streamlining agencies. Neva, how big of an impact did he have to this position?
0: I think he had a tremendous impact. First of all, he was the first uh, and I think that's significant. I think that he helped to build the executive team that the governor wanted to uh, that would work well together. He launched a number of key initiatives. Um, He's certainly been a trusted advisor of the governor and I think again we're talking about a successful business person coming in Mm -hmm. and with many of those folks up front the conversation was and they even some said publicly that they had agreed to stay at least two years um, so there was not a long, long-term commitment that, you know, look, I hope we we come in and maybe I'm going to be here eight years and, and maybe I'll stay on beyond that. It was more for a, a fairly defined period of service, I think, that many of these folks have come in uh, to serve on the cabinet, to serve in these key positions. And so uh, he certainly was, I think the other thing that's noteworthy was his key role in the state's uh, uh, COVID-19 right. response. I mean, he was he was the, the, uh, the one kind of task with putting the group together, uh, helping to um, you know engage the uh, National Guard and all of the uh, all of the uh, important. Uh, departments and agencies in the process and 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 have continuity and have a, a battle plan so to speak that they could really uh, move forward in in uncharted waters so he he came in in a historic uh, uh, role and he certainly came in in unprecedented times and uh, i think uh, folks give him very high marks for the job that he's done
2: right yeah maybe so much so uh, the the shoes that he's left are, are so big to fill that you know maybe nobody fills it. I mean, this job was created for him. I know that the governor's office has yeah. said that they're searching for a replacement. They may just come to the point where they say John Budd was this role, and you know that's and that's that, and we're going to move on and and not have this because I, my understanding it was kind of created for him with mm-hmm. him in mind. I mean, he was typecast for this role. He was role. the kind of person that could do this. Um, and and I also understand that you know this is you know just you know hearsay, uh, but I, I've heard that whenever the governor approached him about serving in this position or serving in the administration uh, that John Budd even said, you know, that he and the governor don't see eye to eye on a lot of policy matters. Uh, And the governor to his credit said, that's why I want you. He wanted somebody in his cabinet, uh, you know, that was a close advisor that could push back, you know, that he had a relationship with that he could push back. And so that's, that's a, you know, a rare individual that you can bring into uh, an administration that has the respect of the governor but then has the ability uh to to push back when necessary you're right after it happened i think i was with uh some longtime state employees uh whenever this happened and everybody was just shocked i mean every you know po- folks that knew uh john Budd, you know really closely uh on a professional basis were just shocked you know there was really no indication that this was happening uh and then if, if you look on twitter Right after it happened, I, t- I took a screen grab of this, so I'd have some of these names here for, for the show. But, um, you know, you had the bipartisan uh, support and, 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 and gratitude for his service. Uh, you had Leslie Blair on there. You had Bailey Perkins, Andy Moore, Mike Mazie, Kyle Hilbert, uh, you know, you have Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, all weighing in and thanking him for his service uh, to the state, especially uh you know during that the pandemic
0: and i think he set the standard in that role but i think that is a role that i would i would be shocked uh, to see it disbanded or not not continued I think the governor in probably fairly uh, uh, short order will put uh, another person in that he thinks fits that bill but when you're when you're responsible in that role for overseeing not only the governor's cabinet but the state agency operations and uh, you're really the person that's at the helm of being able to uh, direct and coordinate the efficiencies and all the things we talked about with these state agencies to have that uh, to have that role all of a sudden disappear I think would be a huge void in the governor's uh, operational style and certainly what he has in place right now.
1: Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.